0: What would it mean to just listen for you right now? At least some of what would be entailed would be seeing when the mind gets all caught up in agree and disagree. You approve of what's being said, you don't approve of what's being said. You start hooking it into some of your other understandings. And by this or other means, drift away from the moment. Or you're kind of in the moment, but there's static in the background. You're listening, but the mind is thinking about all kinds of things, sometimes in response to what's being said, and other times we just drift off, right? We just think about things that have nothing to do with what's going on here. Uh, You could be anywhere, Toledo, Ohio, and then you come back. (laughs) But so the practice of intimacy is not that you decide that you're going to be intimate for the your listening is going to be really true listening for the next, however, uh, minutes. But you notice when there is that immediate hearing and when it's impeded when something gets between you and just simple listening. And many, I've just mentioned a few things. I'm sure you, if you listen, you'll discover them. Actually, the art of listening comes about mainly through becoming aware of inattention. And obviously what I'm saying is not limited to this evening, but listening in relationships that we wish to be intimate, intimacy and real listening go together how can you separate them it's the same thing in a way we left off what I was trying to convey was that One of the main things that we do is that we separate ourselves from our experience by thinking. We do this a lot. We separate ourselves from uh, what's actually happening to us by thinking. And the practice is not so much being concerned with whether your moments are, whether the, the mind is, Happy or unhappy, or whether the mind is, uh, the, the moments are interesting or uninteresting. But whether you can be in touch with the way the moment is, the way it actually is in that moment. And that's a real shift in orientation. It's a, a rather Radical reorientation, uh, which is if if you've tried it, you know that it's not so easy to learn. We keep adding to what's happening to us. We keep filtering it uh, If you call the image of cooking it. The raw experience is what the practice is directed at. But what we do is cook it with ideas all the time, notions, and that's what we think is happening. Underline think. What I was getting at also is that so much of the reason that we don't stay in the moment, that we aren't intimate with what is actually happening right now, is because our mind uh, is very much trained. uh, It's very calculating. And it's very, very much. It's received a great deal of training in what you could call in order to thinking. Everything is in order to. Whatever it is we're doing, it's for something, some other reason. We're doing this for that. So if we're at A, then our mind is on how do we get to B? And some of us who are real express trains, we want to get from A to Z. In one step. And the practice is learning how to get from A to A. Well, why do you need to learn that if you're already there? Where else could you be? You're at A. But are we? If we're at A and a corner of the mind is all caught up as how we can get to uh, B or whatever, then we haven't attained A. Our body is an A. But our mind is already becoming something. When I get to be, I'll be all right. And we were we got it, this notion of becoming and how that gets uh, by now. I hope you've seen that in the practice, how the mind is endlessly. Uh, remember, you came here probably with some purpose in mind. Boy, I hope you can just deposit it in the garbage, whatever that purpose was because you had some intention of how you were going to spend, what you were going to get here, what you were going to get out of it. And if you had that, that's probably gotten in the way of, of uh, between you and what is actually happening. The practice, far more valuable for us all, would be to have a, an expansive, open approach and to experience the way things unfold. In words, the the fullness of it, the full range of what happens to us. If we have intentions, it's much harder to do, even if it's just to have a good sitting. Why do we want to become something other than what we are already? Which is a fact. We are what we are, whatever that is. It seems that there is anxiety, unfulfillment, And so we're forever propelled into some future state, which will solve it all for us. If we only do the right things, when we get there, we'll be okay. And we bring that here into the meditation center as well. We bring it into our practice. Then you hear this. Okay, he's right. Who am I trying to become anything? To be in the moment, uh, in a sense, everything is both a means and an end. Each moment is is absolute truth. It's precious for its own sake. It may lead somewhere, and actually, it's not really odd if you've done this for a while, but it may sound odd. If you want to get to some of the places that you all want to get to, the best place to get there is not by trying to get there, but by getting where you are, getting to where you are, being exactly where you are, learning how to do that. Because uh, what what is being said, what is not being said, is that that enlightenment doesn't matter. All Buddhist teachings are about enlightenment, about the actual possibility of being free, of being liberated from suffering. Well, that sounds like a goal. It sounds like we're not free now, and that in the future, if we are good yogis, we will be free. We do exactly what we're told. Sit the optional sitting at night.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the odd thing is that what takes us anywhere is the ability to thoroughly and fully penetrate the present moment. Uh, if you recall, we uh, we talked a bit about loneliness because when you talk about intimacy, it's. They're kind of included. Loneliness here being a feeling of separation, isolation. I'm going to review a little bit what was said and go into it with a little bit more detail and from a slightly different angle, add a few things to it. Often when we're lonely, I'm not saying this is the only reason we're lonely. People who have that problem, when we have that problem, Uh, It's not unusual when you look carefully to learn that we set up a barrier between ourselves and other people for any number of reasons. Maybe we've been wounded in the past. Whatever the barrier is, we isolate ourselves from others and then we wonder why we feel lonely. Of course, the whole thrust of the Buddhist practice The teachings of the Buddha is that we are responsible for our own happiness. And so uh, the path of uh, this path, when when applied to feelings of isolation and loneliness, is not so much to try to unify with people, although it's very helpful to do positive and constructive things, but to see what is it that is separating us. Why do we feel lonely? Why don't we feel connected? And the starting point, again, not in some global, abstract way, but in concrete moments when you feel separation, when you don't feel what it is you would like to feel. So the emphasis is always on the fact of what's happening rather than the ideal of, let's say, being intimate. And as you all know right now, and it's been true for a while, Uh, Intimacy is is something that is talked about a lot. It seems to be scarce. We want it. It's desirable. And yet, uh, particularly in relationship, and we come together and often don't find it. And from the point of view of awareness practice, it's not a mystery as to why we don't find it. If you have one individual who is not intimate with himself, meeting another individual who's not intimate with themselves, and they both come together trying to get intimate. How can that work unless something radically changes? So the path to another is through yourself. So that when, for example, here's, it's an odd way of talking about it, but let's say uh, in those moments when we do isolate ourselves and if we're doing it a lot, then we may feel lonely. It's a kind of loneliness. We don't feel intimate because we isolate ourselves. We feel lonely. The way into intimacy is to become intimate with loneliness. That's the only way I know that brings you back on track into intimacy. Do you see what I'm getting at? If you can't be intimate with that, which has separated you, it just keeps going on forever. And that's what I was getting at last time. Can we commune, do you recall, enter into communion with this feeling of loneliness? Let's look at it now even more carefully. This can come up in sitting. It can come up anywhere, really. But let's say it comes up in your sitting. And suddenly, um, we have what we would label loneliness. Not the words, not the name loneliness, but something that's deeper underneath the language and images that we have about it into something that's raw, something that is much more wild and primitive. It's a level deeper than, than we often function on. We're often uh, there's a veneer over what's happening, or a layer, or superficial, a superficial surface covering it. So let's say we feel this loneliness in a given moment. Well, what would the practice be? How do you how do you become intimate with that kind of energy, which can be very powerful? First of all, we've got to begin to learn how we don't get in touch with it. If you remember, I I mentioned at the end, uh, I I didn't give it much attention. I feel it's extremely important and I hope it didn't get lost. For quite a while, most of us don't really have faith in the power of direct perception. That by becoming attuned to our direct experience, we're doing the most beneficial thing we can do on our own behalf. We have much more faith in brilliant explanations, theories, or continuing to keep the story alive about the loneliness, not... Not uh, examining it, but keeping the story alive, thinking about the loneliness and sometimes being quite articulate and talking about it to others. Many
1: others.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Why would we prefer that to actually looking at it? I don't it's not that I have the answer, but I certainly know that at least sometimes, at least in the story, when we're keeping the story alive about us and our loneliness. We're still the center of attraction. We're the star, the center of the universe. To really penetrate into loneliness, you have to leave that behind. Okay, let's move closer. But in order to move closer, we have to see the many ways in which the mind doesn't want to feel certain things. Now, when I'm using loneliness, but in interviews, people have talked about shame, about depression, about sadness, about mourning and so It's really the same. We're very similar. So insert something else, if that's what's more meaningful for you. So we escape from the immediacy of what's actually happening, the rawness of it, the naked truth, our truth. No one else is feeling it. It's only, it's only us. By theorizing, explaining it away, denying it, repressing it, justifying it, defending ourselves, blaming someone else. It's the alienation of society. We've read enough paperbacks to arm ourselves and now we're off the hook. It's an alienated society. (laughs) Or heroic putting up with. In other words, we have an amazing capacity to put up with terrible circumstances until finally we can't stand it anymore. And then we explode and we do the right thing. More and more, I think that wisdom is the last resort for all of us. (laughs) It's like when we used up everything else. Okay, I'll try to do wise action. I'll behave wisely. God, do I have to really behave with some wisdom? Yeah, you've used everything else up. (laughs) I wonder why. Why don't we, it's so, it's so much more helpful. Wisdom is. Just clear seeing, intelligence, living on our own best behalf, on our own, with our own best interests in mind. Okay, so there's so many ways to escape from what's happening in the moment. But let's say the day comes where the loneliness surfaces. Please move with me. Really, really stay with me. If you can, if you're feeling something right now, feel it. Uh, what is the quality of attention that we're talking about bringing to that uh, anguish? It's not the word loneliness. It's not any word. We use the word mindfulness. That's another nice sounding word. But what, what does that mean? We can try and hint at it. We use it so often that at times we don't even know what it means anymore. It's a perfectly good word. But we know some of what we're trying to say when we say be mindful of the anguish would mean, first of all, real mindfulness is preconceptual. There's no thinking in it. Its job is to mirror what's happening. And when it's real mindfulness, it's a clear mirror and it just reflects what's there. It also is not for or against anything. Mindfulness can only happen in the present moment, right now. Those are some attributes, some of the things that we're talking about. I'd like to use other language as well. I'm trying to say the same thing, but to evoke something in you. In Cambridge, which is where we all live, words like um, innocent, naive, are not very good words. It's, you know, thickly populated with intellectuals and... The worst thing anyone can say about you is that you're unsophisticated or you're innocent or you're naive. And maybe that's true. If you're naive, maybe you do foolish things. And why would you do that? Well, I guess I was just naive. But in Dharma practice, naive is a good word. Innocent is a good word. Uh, Unsophisticated. These are just other ways of saying beginner's mind, don't know mind, coming to that anguish in that place that doesn't that hasn't already concluded what it is that doesn't have all of the past it's not living in the shadow of the past but it experiences whatever that is in that kind of a direct and fresh way now if the mind in that state can touch the anguish if it can touch the anguish, really come in contact with it. Sometimes something very beautiful can happen. Perhaps you've experienced it in small ways. Transformation can happen. And of course, enlightenment experiences are made out of that. In that moment, when we've, we've, we're not on the track of thinking, but we're on the track of direct experience, we're in touch with the anguish just as it is. That's There's a lot of language used for it. That's arousing the way-seeking mind. It's, it's sometimes spoken of that way. Entering the stream of Dharma. Shining your Buddha nature on what's on the anguish. Whatever language you like. But that mysterious energy, which is invisible, where is it? And yet it is there and as you more and more use it. It's quite powerful. When, if and when we can come in touch, if that innocence, that uncontrived kind of looking, can come in touch with the anguish, something beautiful can happen. Transformation can happen right in that moment. And I'd rather not say that, you know, sometimes the transformation is very powerful, some enlightenment experiences are documented and they happen anywhere. They happen in ordinary experiences because out of ordinary experiences because the person was ripe. The mind was ripe and the ability to, to be that innocent, that direct with, without any contrivance whatsoever to experience the anguish in an uncooked way. Again, it needn't be anguish. It can be a flower. Someone attained enlightenment just seeing uh, a, f- a flower just fall to the ground. A rose petal, I believe, or it's not, not really... Anything can do it. It's not in the thing. It's in the openness that we have, the openness of the heart to what's happening. Now, if you followed me this far, there's something missing. If you can accept, whether on faith or if you have some experience of what I'm talking about, There's something that's missing in that moment that makes it possible for that beautiful thing to happen. What is it that's not there? Something absent is making it possible for this transformation to happen. I'm not going to quiz you, but I would like you to think about it. I will tell you. (laughs) What isn't there and which which makes the, the moment... Uh, such a magical moment in a way is you. You're not there. Me and mine. When it becomes my loneliness, I'm lonely. When it's attached to as being a being that is lonely, when am I going to be uh, in communion? When am I going to be intimate, etc.? that prevents the opening that I'm talking about. In those moments where there's clear seeing, uh, there's just anguish, but there's no one who's in anguish. We've left the big problem behind, even if it's just for a few moments. I don't know about you, but I know my biggest problem, Larry. (laughs) Too much Larry, not enough Buddha. Maybe you're different, but it's very clear to me that when I get in trouble, it's me. I've gotten myself into it. And the path, of course, is emptying, 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 living more in that place. Okay, so that's what that's about. When loneliness is digested in this way, and I'm, again, not giving you a code book or a rule book, that if you do this, you get that, but when those uh, beautiful moments happen, you may come upon something that's called aloneness, which is very different. It's not separation. Separation is the path of the self. Isolation is the path of me and mine. The Buddha's teaching have been summed up in the most economical way that what the Buddha is saying is under no conditions, atta- under no circumstances attached to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. If you attach to your loneliness, you make loneliness, you have loneliness. Okay, for some of you who are new here, I hope this isn't a strange way of talking about things. there's a clue that I'd, I'd like to because it gives us a sense of direction in the practice. If it's really true that in that moment, when that innocent mind touched the anguish and because we weren't there in the sense, there was clear seeing, but there was no self-conscious Vipassana Yogi who was doing the seeing. there was just the seeing because the attentiveness was that attentive. If it's true that that's such a a beneficial moment, uh, can you see that that is, by taking care of this moment, if you want enlightenment, uh, it doesn't drop from the sky. uh, Depth in our understanding and our seeing. Uh, It doesn't come from outside of us. The very confusion that we have is the materials, is, is is what clarity is. Clarity and confusion are all together. They're all, they're intimate. And so we're talking about the deepest truths as well as uh, very ordinary ones. And I'd like to give you a few, a a range, use some more examples, which I hope can make this so concrete for you. When we want to become, which is so common for us, and we hear about enlightenment and we want to get enlightenment, get enlightened. But then we hear that's just a big ego trip anyway. So then... Uh, the ego, the, the Buddha talked about the other. The Buddha, I, I've rarely been able to find anything that the Buddha didn't already think of. Because the other side of that is, is uh, not becoming. First, you want to become, but it's really the same thing as when you try to not become. And here is a, a Jewish story, which I think sums it up very quickly and clearly. I just spoke to my mother and she uh, was at a Passover Seder a few days ago and it reminded me of this story which uh, I think is, I hope I'm not just making something up to get the story in, but I think it's appropriate (laughs) what this is. It's the high holidays at the synagogue and everyone is there. The the synagogue is, is... just packed. And the rabbi is there. Those who don't know, the rabbi is the chief religious figure. I guess everyone knows who a rabbi is. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I'm
0: still attached to 1950 or something. Okay. The rabbi gets up and he's in his really ceremonial attire, just beautifully dressed. And suddenly he starts screaming in an anguished way I'm nothing, I'm nobody, I'm just a nobody. There's absolutely nothing here. Oh, and everyone's so moved. (laughs) And then the assistant rabbi gets up and he says, Oh, I'm just absolutely a zero. I'm nothing. There's nobody here. I'm a complete nothing. And people are also moved again. (coughs) What wonderful teachers they have. (laughs) Then the janitor gets up. (laughs) (laughs) And he's got his work clothes on. And in a very uneducated way, starts saying, I'm nothing. I'm absolutely a zero. There's nothing here. And then the chief rabbi looks at him and says, Look at who thinks he's a nobody.
1: <laughs>
0: so it's hard to slip out of that trap. Where are you in the middle of all this? Have you had any feelings today? Anything about how your practice is unfolding or where it might lead to? Let me give you some more examples. Um, What I'm hoping to do by these examples is, by the end of our retreat, whether you want to live this way of really devoting yourself to be intimate with your experience, it's not meant to be just for IMS. It's a way of life, really, where more and more we learn to remember to be in first-hand touch with what is actually happening to us right now. What I hope is through these examples, uh, such phrases as be here now, living in the now, and all these which have become somewhat like cliches, which are used a lot by everyone, that it takes on a little bit more of a concrete feeling. That it's in this practice, uh, it's quite palpable. There's a real texture to it. There's a real difference when you kind of uh, slip off and go into the mind path and start into the thinking path rather than into the Dharma path. And my hope is that a variety of these examples, I've tried to pick them from rather different aspects of life, will make it concrete. And whether you decide to live this way or not, at least it will add in a small way to your understanding of what, uh, what this is about. Some small things and then we'll get bigger if we have time tonight not, we'll do it um, in a few evenings. Let's take cheese. <laughs> I know Narayan would like to have some. <laughs> she likes cheese.
1: <laughs>
0: okay. At least two days ago, you wanted some cheese. Okay. Some years ago, uh, quite a while ago, actually, pr- probably before many of you were born. Uh, things French were in vogue. Now things Oriental are in vogue, right? Everything Oriental is good. Things French, everything's French, with f- the, the croissant was not just a part of everyday life. It was in a special, plus, special place that only those people who really understood, who were deep intellectuals, <laughs> they knew where to find a special coffee shop that had croissants and French coffee and French everything, including French cheese. And people would spend their junior year abroad in Paris and that was considered the most wonderful thing you could do and I'd drop a French word now and then. You don't hear that done so much. Now you hear, yeah. You know. And there was, uh, I know a person who when we were doing this practice reported, you know, in being aware, of what was happening. What she noticed was a French cheese that she'd been eating for 10 years uh, that she didn't like it at all. (laughs) (laughs) So for 10 years, she'd been eating a concept. uh, That's what I mean by we cook our experience the taste is irrelevant. The important thing is that it's French. Okay, it wouldn't surprise me, and only you know, if now what's being repla- is replacing cheese is tofu and tofu burgers and tofu pups and rice milk and you know all these other things that people seem to like. Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: low cholesterol. Made in Japan or someplace? Uh, Check it out. (laughs) Okay. I'll give you another example. We'll move into teeth now. You're feeling a certain kind of stirring in the tooth. It's not so pleasant. Oh my God, no. Not. This is going to be. It's going to be a root canal. I'm going to to go there. It's going to cost me hundreds of dollars. I hate it. The injection, the Novocaine, the the dentist talking incessantly. I don't want to. (laughs) Uh, And so the mind is brilliant. Now, it moves away from that intimate experience of something that's going on in the tooth. And it will do all kinds of things to take take itself away from that, separate itself. From the immediacy of the experience, because to take it seriously would mean to go to the dentist and that 's the last thing you want to do. The practice more and more is seeing that, and it 's staying with that stirring or whatever you want to call it i don 't even want to call it pain let 's call maybe it is a bit of discomfort something 's happening that doesn 't usually happen in what we call a tooth, and if you stay with it, sometimes what it leads to is it 's just um, Episodic, It just comes and happens, who knows why, and then it's gone and there's no need to go to the dentist. At other times, if you stay with it, it's really obvious that you should go to the dentist. There's an intelligence in us uh, that, is, that isn't just all this thinking and figuring it out and conceptual. So that, uh, from the point of view of practice, staying close to our experience is staying close to intelligence. The body is a very beautiful and brilliant organism if we don't uh, muck it up basically with concepts I, images of the body, its age, its shape, its attractiveness, etc. It's health. Uh, part of what happens in this practice, as you probably know, is to get back into intimate contact with your body, N- not the body as an image, but just the, the sensations that... Uh, the internal, the inner body, in a sense, not as a concept. Okay. Food, again, hmm, teeth. That's food. You know, it's all. I it seem to be in the mouth area tonight. <laughs> okay. uh, many years ago, I was in Korea with two other Americans who were practicing Zen, and uh, we had robes on, and we, were in, we landed in Korea, and We were the first Americans to come to Korea to practice Zen, and they didn't know what to do with us. It was really a very, very, it was a nightmare, to put it mildly. Uh, To begin with, everyone meant well. They did. We did. But the food was just, uh, for us, it was unbearable. Uh, They have no concept of breakfast, for example. And so we couldn't get our, our breakfast in the morning. They just eat similar food is not much of a range of food and it was uh, rice and kimchi and a few other things, cabbage. And, and so pretty soon we started to realize uh, where we were. Well, we didn't realize where we were. We were back in America and we started making all these jokes. Even a Big Mac would be wonderful now. I, oh, even cornflakes would be great. Uh, uh, we suffered a lot every time it was mealtime And it went on and on and on. Uh, And then finally, one day, uh, our teacher, uh, I was, I think I was the ringleader. Anyway, he more or less pushed me up against the wall and just said, where are you? He screamed at me. It was very frightening at the moment. Where are you? And I said, Korea. And he said, exactly. (laughs) So you've heard of the way it is? Well, in Korea, they just don't eat breakfast. It's not their fault. But we were not even tasting the food. From that point on, uh, it got so much easier. uh, Because our minds were all filled up with all this stuff. We were in the past. We were living in the past. And as soon as we started to pay attention to what does this Korean food actually taste like, it was really quite good. Now it's one of my favorite ways to eat, quite honestly. I'll give you another another example of uh, this intimate contact with what's going on and how uh, there's always this issue of um, how we use thinking to separate ourselves from our experience. We're starting to go get a little bit uh, deeper. My father is in a nursing home and has Alzheimer's disease. At least that's what I was told he has. and. Uh, He's been there for about a year and a half. And for the first six months that I visited him, my father and I are very close. um, Two problems got in the way. Well, actually, first there was the first problem was my mind kept uh, comparing him to the way I knew him uh, as a very rational, clear thinking, energetic, uh, alert and astute person to now someone who is half the time not making sense. And so uh, that memory, that attachment to the past notion of how my father was, kept getting between us. And although I felt his pain, uh, I I started to feel disconnected. I couldn't feel uh, a kind of closeness that I was used to. And if it wasn't that, it would be... Alzheimer's, I realized in a very subtle way how that slipped in between my father and I, that category. Because when I found out that we thought he had it and then we found out that he, it seemed as if he had it, I read a lot about it. And so I had all these ideas as to what happens to a person when the brain deteriorates in quite this way. And so there were these filters of what my father used to be and now this uh, medical diagnostic category, which it, I'm not faulting the category. It's just that what it did to my mind was that suddenly my father went from being my father to being an Alzheimer's patient. Uh, and this went on for quite some time. It, of course, it, it's not a happy situation when this happens to someone you love. Uh, but this complicated things. Finally, I started to see it. I started to see that I wasn't really with my father. There was some kind of a, a filter between us. And it was either I was either seeing him through some diagnostic category or through him when he was in his 50s and he's now 87. When I started to see that and let go of that, something rather interesting happened. I can't say that I enjoy seeing my father in the shape he's in. That's not true. But when we visited, now the the visits before had a sameness to it. It's as if we knew what we were going to feel when we got there, which is total uh, sadness and um, sometimes pity for him. But now, with these other things wiped away, or more or less not dominating... I started to just come in and just look at him and hear what he was saying and feel what he was saying. And even though half the time I couldn't understand, he would be putting things together, something that happened five minutes ago with something that happened 70 years ago, something that happened in Russia, with where he was born, with something that happened uh, you know, a week ago. It was very hard to make sense out of it. But if you really listened, there was, another, there was something in it. The, the, you could feel where he was, as we say, coming from. And without all that, either the past or the medical categories between us, I was able to really see how he was in this, in this particular moment. And, to my surprise, sometimes he actually seemed to be pretty happy. He was in a, a world that he had created, which wasn't bad, where he was a big shot in his, in his new world inside of his mind, everything was much better. He was in charge of this and in charge of that and the president was interested in his opinions and and I saw a smile on his face like, no, Deb, that's not true. The president doesn't care about what you think. (laughs) 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 And it was very different uh, because I could see how he actually was now without notions about, well, he couldn't have one happy second because he's in a nursing home how could there be even one millionth of a second that's happy? But the truth is, I and I checked with some of the, uh, the staff and nurses, and they said, oh, yeah, he's c- quite a comedian sometimes. You know, he's very nice. We really, and he isn't just tormented all the time. Do you see what I'm getting at? That is, uh, what the practice is aiming towards is to become real. In other words, we're real. Life is real if we're real. And the approach to it is not mysterious. It's noticing from moment to moment uh, just how it feels to be you in this moment. It's learning, in a sense, how to be yourself. How odd that we have to sit and hurt our knees and our backs and all this just to learn how to be who we are, to allow ourselves to just be that. But I think that's a lot of what our practice is about. And when you're with the breathing, when you hear the sound of a bird, you really hear it just chirp, chirp. Uh, When you really just experience a breath in its nakedness, when you just feel your foot touch down on the floor and you feel uh, a certain sensation in the foot, when you eat and you now say if you're eating more slowly and uh, you're quiet, chewing, careful, and you feel the sensations that come about because of the food. You feel the taste. You taste the taste. You see the color of the food. You really smell the aroma of the food. These little things may seem inconsequential. Uh, why would I want? It? Why do I have to do so much of this? But when we bring that mind of innocence, that naive mind, to our anguish, it's in principle not different. It's not different than hearing chirp-chirp or uh, experiencing the sensations in our feet. It means the um, uncontrived, direct, simple, uh, natural experience of what's happening in the moment. And as we learn that on some of the, on the breathing and other things that are not so highly charged, In short, every moment that you're mindful is a moment well spent. It may not be dramatic. And if you're constantly wanting a payoff, constantly doing something in order to get something else, it's going to be hard to do this practice for the remaining days. But if you can see everything, uh, the practice does lead somewhere. It's not a dead end. We're not here to learn how to just be aimless and random and uh, siesta time, just do nothing, live under... You know, who cares? No goals, nothing. No ambition, just lose our job.
1: A- aimless, shiftless people.
0: Every moment that we're in direct contact with what's happening to us uh, is c- contributing to. Uh, Awakening to becoming an alive, to becoming alive, to being more fully alive. <coughs> Tomorrow the instructions will change a bit. Some of you have been uh, concerned about that. It's nothing to be apprehensive about. Uh, <laughs> we've given these instructions many, many times. No one has perished as a result of it. <laughs> Maybe we make it too different. Tomorrow there are going to be these new instructions. I think we going to be a little disappointed. You know? It's still, again, to be mindful. What do you think we're going to say? But uh, some of what we're going to be learning tomorrow will be uh, how to pay attention to the wide range of experiences that make up a human being. The Buddha was known as someone who had mastered come what may seeing. I've always loved that phrase. It says, says so much to me. Come what may, he learned how to do that. No matter what it is, he could look it in the eye. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we could do that? Can you see how that's already free? That you're not wasting so much energy, struggling and trying to fix everything and get somewhere and become someone and escape and hide and deny and protest and uh, put up with and heroically and all the rest of it. So tomorrow, in a small way, the the practice extends things where we're going to get some experience in being aware not just of the breathing, but of the full range of whatever is there. Just the way it is in that moment. some meditation while walking please when your time for interviews come thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate